This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. So it's going, and then, yeah, I think you know them. Uh, Just one of those guys, and then there's only two of them. Yep. Oh, it, yeah, just to uh, go back. Oops. Yeah. And then it goes over. I wonder why it's what. Oh, there it is. Yeah, and then this one's that way. That's the I wouldn't get that one. You want to do that one the whole time? No, I, yeah. That's, that's, that's all right. That's one. There we go. Oh, yeah, there you go. Okay, good. Okay, welcome to Friday Night at the Brie. Um, <clears throat> speaking on critical race theory and introduction this evening. Uh, next week, Joshua is giving a lecture on to give grief, grief a shape, looking at the book of Lamentations. So, a book that we've felt needs more attention I think in the years we've been here we need to um, give the book of Lamentations and the idea of lament uh, more attention than it usually gets speaking up okay you uh, give me this if if I'm still not loud enough I'll keep I'll try and keep it up but just give me a an ear cup or something, uh, and I, I'll, I'll try and pick it up. Okay, well, it's it's a um, critical race theory is a controversial thing, and it's been controversial quite a while. I've been looking at it, thinking about it for quite a while. Um, strong opinions dividing black from white, black from black, white from white, Christian from Christian. Uh, there are not many obvious uh, lines of delineation that that um, that form these lines. Some of these disputes are, I think, of because there are different aspects of what critical race theory is, what it's become. It's less a an established theory with an orthodox creed that everybody signs up to and has its. Uh, uh, Officials, um, it's more of a diagnosis of what's gone wrong in racial relations over the last uh, 50 or 60 years, and some possible solutions. Quite a bit of, quite a few possible solutions uh, coming out among them. Uh, there's no one organization that represents it. Uh, there's there's uh, just the name critical race theory, but that is not the name of an organization. Uh, there's Black Lives Matter, which is very involved in it. There's anti-racism, which is a name of an organization or a, a movement itself. Identity politics. There's all sorts of ways of 
of putting together diversity training in the corporate world and the educational world um, that are, that are uh, drawn on this whole tradition. This connection is also to the LGBTQ movement and uh, all that that's doing because of its similarity with, with marginalized people. Uh, and everybody at some point in this that I've mentioned is directing traffic, is, is uh, pointing the way, pointing the direction, um, as well as, just to th- make things a little bit more complicated, there are philosophical influences coming into this, both from cultural or neo-Marxism and also from postmodernism. You look at, you read books on this, and people disagree over which is the most important influence, influence on this. Is it Marxism? Is it postmodernism? Uh, or whatever. I'll be referring mainly to black uh, scholars, both for and against critical race theory, since they've written a lot, and more than I've been able to read. And also, they're obviously major stakeholders in the questions. Um, Although some issues are shared with other minority groups in this country, African-American history has enough of its own story, so I'm just going to stick to that. I'm not going to get into Native American things or Hispanic or Asian uh, populations in this country who also have all sorts of legitimate issues uh, that are have been working out and are working out, despite the importance of those groups. It's just more than I can, it's much more than I can handle to really do justice to the African-American side, let alone bringing in everything else. Ideally, I'd want to give a running start to give a historical context for how this happened. But as I thought about that, there wasn't going to be enough room for the lecture uh, after the running start. It would be all context. So I'm going to count on your knowledge of history and give, give you, just give you some historically inadequate points of reference, okay? Uh, just because I can't bear to approach this with no historical context at all. So what I'm going to give you is not adequate, uh, but it's a little bit. And uh, we need some, I think, to, to understand it at all. Starting off with background. Um, Slavery of some sort seems to be about as old as recorded time. Uh, We did not invent slavery in this country in the 17th century. But slavery in the ancient world was not based on race. In Greece and Rome, military victories enabled the victor to enslave the defeated. The Greeks enslaved other Greeks. Aristotle wrote quite a lot to justify that which unhappily has had enormous justifying effect for later people uh, who wanted to justify slavery. People are just by nature slaves. It suits them, uh, according to him. It takes him longer to say that than I just said. But, but um, when, when Caesar, when, when Roman uh, world came around, when Caesar was a Roman general, he would often defeat a city in Gaul and simply sell the whole population of the city to slave traders who were following him around as he was going through Gaul. And so it was just a direct military part of the whole thing and a way that you'd finance your military operation. Um, It seems that the category of race came into use in in slavery when Portugal started to trade slaves uh, from Africa and found it morally easier to justify, perhaps, 
if black Africans were considered a separate race, an inferior race, for whom slavery was uh, an appropriate thing. Uh, we now know that Africans actually have complete genetic similarity with the genetic variations of the rest of humanity, so that any given African might actually have greater genetic similarity with a fellow African than they had with a European or an Asian, because of such enormous genetic diversity in Africa. Um, the idea of race as we now use it actually has, and what so many people are saying from so many different perspectives, has no, bio, no basis in biology at all, the way we use it today. It was a socially constructed idea to cover the economic convenience of slavery and a moral, the moral self-deception that enables people to do it. Some have called the idea of race a kind of mirage or human, a completely a human construction. But because of the importance of the history of this mirage, the history of this use of this word, it has become an incredibly important reality. You can't just say, well, it doesn't exist. It does exist, not because it's rooted in biology, but because it's rooted in human history. It's absolutely impossible uh, to sidestep or, or to deny. Ibram Kendi, one of the leaders of the anti-racism movement, put it this way. He heads up a whole anti-racism department at Boston University. He says, we are what we see ourselves as, whether what we see exists or not. I'll read that again to make sure you get a hold of it. We are what we see ourselves as, whether what we see exists or not. And he's dealing with the reality of race or the non-reality of race, but the presence of race that is a necessary thing to deal with. Slave trade was well underway by the time the early colonists came, as some of you know who have been disappointed by checking out the Puritans here. The Mathers were right there justifying slavery from the early days of the Massachusetts colony here. Um, Roughly, in the whole course of the slave trade, roughly a third of the slaves died on the Middle Passage across the Atlantic, having been separated from their languages, from their cultures, from their families, and when they arrived were put up to sale for sale at auction. That's just impossible to conceive of what that would be like at a psychological level to experience for me anyway. I will have your to re, I have to rely on your memory of American history to fill in an enormous amount here, um, which I'm going to have to just go racing over uh, to fill in the growth uh, and cruelty of slavery's expansion into becoming a necessary part of the colonies and then the nation's economies, especially in the South, though the North made a great deal of money off the slave trade. By 1860, it had become so politically problematic that it led to a civil war, after which the abolition of slavery was uh, declared in the 13th Amendment, and then guaranteeing full citizenship and equal protection of the law to ex-slaves in the 14th Amendment by 1868. Now, I have just gone over a vast amount of history, so uh, I've not uh, um, done that because it's 
inconsequential at all, but simply because I'm trying to save time. The process of integrating freed slaves into society was called Reconstruction, but it had barely begun when it was ended because it was supported by Union, Union troops staying in the South and enforcing it. In 1877, the Union troops were withdrawn from the South, which allowed, uh, unhappily, our Southern brothers and sisters to try to recover as much of the slave status of freed slaves as they possibly could. That's maybe a northern view or a pro-black view, but that's hard to uh, avoid through what we've come, come to be known as Jim Crow laws, enforcing separation, restriction, and dependence. In the agricultural world, this involves sharecropping, which was getting ex-slaves pretty close to slave status in terms of the way their lives looked, uh, though they weren't technically slaves. They weren't allowed to save money. They were always in debt to the master and so on. Some of them were even going back to the same uh, plantations that they started from. So uh, there was protest, conflict, as hopes were destroyed. And then an important Supreme Court case called Plessy versus Ferguson was handed down in 1896. It was over whether the Jim Crow laws actually respected the 14th Amendment or not. Was what was going on a an adequate um, giving to them of of equal protection of law and so forth um, when they were kept from public life, uh, economic freedom enjoyed by whites, uh, so on. Is was this uh, an adequate keeping to the to the Fourteenth Amendment, which guaranteed supposedly equal protection of the law? Homer Plessy. Uh, had decided to ride in a whites-only railroad railroad car in Louisiana. He was a pre-Rosa Parks uh, individual, I guess, somehow, um, because I don't hear him referred to very often. He was, someone figured out, seven-eighths white and one-eighth black. That means, I think, he had one black great-grandparent. But he was considered black, and he... Uh, and so he was arrested, having been on this car. He lost the case in the Supreme Court, and out of it came the doctrine uh, that keeping black people separate but equal, that's the phrase that came out of this, was legal and permitted by the 14th Amendment. Uh, it was passed by seven to one margin. One judge abstained, and one judge, Harron, said, this is going to cause you more trouble than slavery. And so he voted against it, and I think he was maybe not totally right, but pretty close. And I'll come back to to uh, to this later on. Going on, charging here, going, skipping over a huge amount. 1954 came the, another Supreme Court decision, Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. The co- court saw that segregated schools of the South were by no means equal uh, to the white schools. And, and and so uh, Brown versus Board of Education uh, basically overturned Plessy versus Ferguson when it came to education, but not in totality. And so the decision called for public school integration. This was both, in one sense, a triumph for civil rights, because a lot of people have been working very much for it, who are working hard in civil rights, 
uh, but a huge blow to the South. Some the South compared it to Pearl Harbor. Interesting. But the court made no requirement of a timeline about how and when this school integration was to be done. Some actually, even on the, who were on the cynical side, perhaps on this, thought that the Supreme Court never, never occurred to them that it would actually be enforced. So it would sit there and somehow justify us as having freed ourselves from it, but it would never actually happen. Uh, when pressed that nothing's happening, uh, they met again and said it should happen with deli- all deliberate speed, which did nothing to speed it up. Um, there was some progress under Eisenhower. Little Rock uh, schools were integrated, but at enormous, with enormous confrontation there, which made everybody realize anywhere we go on this is going to be a huge collision. Um, by the 1950s, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had been at work and had established a, a tremendous sense of leadership through his work as a pastor, but through his work just uh, looking uh, in a very sensitive way at, at the different issues that were going on around him, uh, working with, with a focus on civil disobedience and nonviolent protests, very much saying we are... Um, honoring Christian principles uh, and you cannot on Christian principles uh, justify the kind of racism that is going on uh, I don't have time to go over his life and progression of it except that the march on Washington was in, in 1963 um, and under the Kennedys and then Johnson uh, <clears throat> the Civil Rights Act, Act was passed in 1964 uh, the Voting Rights Act in 1965 and the Fair Housing Act in 1968. Between those, particularly the Civil Rights Act, it, it really uh, uh, eliminated the Jim Crow laws in principle. So no separate uh, but equal, no whites-only signs here and there and everywhere. Uh, only whites allowed in this hotel, this store, this club or whatever um, that, was, that was open to the public. Um, the big question that causes discussion of critical race theory and all that's going on around is what has happened since 1970 in the 50s and 60s there were really good and great steps forward in civil rights legislation um, under the leadership of Martin Luther King and many many others around him but King was murdered in 1968 as was Bobby Kennedy Uh, since then the progress of civil rights has not gone forward as, as many people had hoped. There seemed little evidence that school systems had improved, uh, nor that income distribution had improved, job possibilities, home ownership, uh, nor had health care, nor grievances with, with the criminal justice system particularly improved. Derek Bell was a black lawyer who had fought hundreds of legal cases for the NAACP, over, oh, mostly over school integration, over mostly over the enforcement of the 54 uh, um, bill uh, that, that, uh, that um, <coughs> d- demanded integrated schools, <coughs> and Brown versus Board of Education. He then taught at various university law schools, and among them he was the first black professor to have tenure at the Harvard Law School. He spent about 10 years at the Harvard Law School, I think. Um, but he began to 
to start to believe a heresy, which is that the celebrated 1954 Board of Edu- Brown versus Board of Education, that everyone said, this is, we're, good, we're moving forward, everything is on the, on the move, it's all wonderful, um, or getting wonderful. Um, and he'd been fighting to enforce it for much of his professional life. He was beginning to think that it actually has done no good at all and may have actually done harm. Uh, when schools were integrated, white students who could afford to leave did leave and go to the newly formed private schools that were made in the suburbs outside of the major southern cities, uh, which, because they were private schools, did not need to be integrated. So it was created in order to maintain segregated schools for those who could afford it. Uh, Leaving poor whites and black students in the inner city schools where typically they would replace, and this was a, a spin that was, I hadn't realized, but typically they would replace the black teachers with white teachers um, who were nowhere near as able to connect with black students as, as the black students had been. Uh, Bell began to see, hey, listen, this thing that we've, this is our great achievement, and look what it's done, what's happening. Uh, he began to then formulate ideas which together with other legal scholars became um, critical legal theory, cursive critical race theory, um, because the critical theories were going on in the, in the legal world already this time. These were built around his conviction that civil rights progress had stalled since 1970, because despite the legislation of the mid-60s, there was a, and this term as you see again and again in this literature, a baked-in racism, baked-in racism, and white privilege, which was not being confronted uh, I mean, all the talk and legal maneuvering and apparent concern uh, over racial issues. He claimed to see what he called interest convergence. Whenever policies, policies were seriously considered to help black people, they would only happen if they were also, if they also furthered the interests of white people as well, if not more. So basically he and others began to say that the whole society has been shaped by whites for the benefit of whites in outcome. And uh, that this reaches into all sorts of areas of society that you don't, you wouldn't even think of. That individual racist acts of individuals, though terrible, were not the most basic issue. Defining racism. Uh, it's a Columbia professor called John McWhorter, a black linguistic professor there at Columbia who writes about almost everything. He's incredibly um, a sort of a Renaissance man character. Um, but he has written a lot on this. His book, Woke Racism, is very interesting. But he's a real opponent of critical race theory. There's much that goes in, uh, to it. But he tracks three waves of the, the resistance to racism historically. The first wave he saw in the abolition movement against slavery up through and through the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King Jr. and his battle against segregation and Jim Crow. Racism meant arrogance, cruelty, condescension, abuse from individual people, groups, and completely uh, dehumanizing political structures. The second wave, he sort of simply makes... the resistance to racism, a little bit like the three uh, stages of feminism, first wave, second wave, third wave of feminism. Second wave anti-racism was from 1970 
to around 2010, when everybody battled against racist attitudes and actions and managed to swing the tide so that the term racism became something that was understood to be a major moral failing, which you would say was not necessarily true then. And I think that's true. As I read the literature is written back in the 50s and 60s, particularly in the late 40s, or yeah, any time in the 40s, there's a shamelessness of what we would choke on as racist ways of expressing things. Um, but he, he points now, the, the, the words, you're a racist, is about a, as bad an accusation as you can receive, along with, let's say, you're a pedophile. So that the, 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 the moral awareness, at least at a at the level of he's a, um, a linguistics professor, so he's sensitive to the use of language, um, would say that that's that's something that's somewhat significant anyway. The third wave of anti-racism uh, became mainstream in 2010, and at least one wing of the movement adopted the term anti-racism as their name. This is where you see critical race theory, the emphasis which is not so much on the acts or words of individuals who are racist, uh, who are cruel and unjust, uh, but on the structures of society which favor the overall prosperity of white people more than people of color. Ibram Kendi um, points out that it's one thing, in quite a helpful way, I think, it's one thing to condemn the perpetrators who bombed the church in Birmingham, killing four black girls in their Sunday school class in 1963. He says that's one thing. He says it's another to identify perpetrators behind the death of 500 black babies who die each year in Birmingham because of the lack of proper food, shelter, and medical facilities. Now you have to say, well, uh, he's got a point. And he's right. It's harder to to identify them. A lot more work to to, uh, put that together and figure out why has this happened. There's a white woman, Robin D'Angelo, who has probably done more than most people for to inform white people about um, critical race theory in her book, White Fragility. She's a teacher of seminars on diversity and racism in American corporations. Has written a book called White Fragility. Um, I've got no time to review the book. But her argument is that we need to redefine racism and realize that virtually all white people are racists because they simply exist in society which is encourages which encourages them to prosper in ways that black people are not. She does, does a lot to describe different power structures to show the radical inequality between black and white today. But white fragility is her picture of white people insecure about the danger of being called racist uh, for any reason just when it, well, afraid it's going to come from some unexpected direction, um, hit them and end their career possibly, which is not a joke, uh, but living in the fragility of that fear, not knowing what to, quite what to do with it. She tries to say that white people who live with comparative advantages and privileges of being white, she says, and I'm, this is a direct quote, accept that you're a racist, but don't think that makes you a bad person. Uh, it's not at all clear to me what they're meant to do, she says, to dismantle structures, um, which means the structures of, of uh, the white supremacist society that's been created. Um, but I find it quite a disappointing book and a difficult book to know what she's actually aiming at. The relationship of racism to inequality. In speaking about equality and inequality, you have to talk about what are we talking about? 
Uh, we need to clarify if we're talking about equality of opportunity, if people are equal uh, in the sense of the opportunity they have to succeed, to prosper, or whatever, or the equality of actual outcome, whether they have succeeded or not succeeded or whatever. Do you see what I'm saying? There's, a, there's quite a, a clear distinction. For example, racism would limit life's opportunities and so tend to make a good life less likely as an outcome. When after the passage of the Civil Rights Bill in the 1960s, many have been disappointed that there's not been better outcomes uh, in the critical areas of economic growth, job advancement, home ownership, educational achievement, medical care, fairness in the criminal justice system, and so on. The question is, why is this, why, uh, is, why is this progress so slow? The danger here comes from I think a simplistic all-or-nothing answer to, to, those, to that question: Why is it so slow? Um, and I, this is one of my criticisms of critical race theory: is that it's, it's quite simplistic in its answer to this, which is that racism is built into the structures of society, and so it limits equality of opportunity, so that it completely accounts for inequality of outcome. It's the full explanation for inequality of outcome. Tanahisi Coates, who was a very popular leader in critical race theory, wrote, there's nothing wrong with black people that complete and total elimination of white supremacy would not fix. Let me read that again. There's nothing wrong with black people that complete and total elimination of white supremacy would not fix. This is to say that structural racism is the whole problem. Without the, without the white supremacy culture, there would be no problem at all. Both he and Kendi take the view that if you disagree with that, you're necessarily a racist. So they're fairly intolerant of uh, disagreeing with uh, uh, their views. Uh, Kendi writes, all forms of racism are overt if our anti-racist eyes are open to seeing racist policy in equal inequity. Let me read that again, because all forms of racism are, are, are overt if our anti-racist eyes are open to seeing racist policy and racial inequity. In other words, there is racial inequity. If our anti-racist eyes are open to see it, we will see it is caused by racist policies. Our, 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 if our anti-racist eyes are trained, they will be able to see racism whenever and wherever there is racial inequality. Now that's taking one whole side of that argument uh, in a way which I think is difficult. Um, the response of people in white evangelical churches are pretty, who are pretty dug in against critical race theory want to say that there's no sy- systemic or, or structural racism at all because that was dealt with in the legislation of the 1960s. They say, tend to say the main problem is that there are, there are certainly racist individuals, bad apples who are racist in the mix, and there's also a lack of motivation among black people to account for this difference. Uh, Thomas Sowell is an intriguing black economist who's taught almost everywhere, most universities in this country uh, in his 80, more, more, more than 80 years. Um, but has written a book, a recent book actually, on exactly this topic. It's called Discrimination and Disparities. Discrimination and Disparity. In other words, discriminate, racist discrimination and the disparities that do or do not come from it. Um, 
he, ments, he laments the academic world, which has been cursed with what he calls, quote, stampedes toward one-factor explanations. Stampedes toward one-factor explanations to this problem. In the early, in, he says, in the early 20th century, the key factor behind economic, intellectual, and other disparities among groups was uh, accounting for the inequality of outcome was assumed to be genetics first half of the 20th century. It was all genetics. Hundreds of university courses were taught on eugenics. My father, for example, in college in the 1930s got courses in, uh, in eugenics in this. Uh, someone mentioned that Hitler's one positive contribution to civilization was to give eugenics a really bad name. So people leave it alone, have left it alone for a good long time. That's not to say they will continue to leave it alone, which I think, I think we'd be t- we would be... Um, Naive to think that it's that given what's going on today, that they will not be back on the table. But, but uh, Hitler has put eugenics to bed for quite a uh, quite a time. Uh, but the latter half, he's, this is this is Thomas Sowell t- still talking. In the latter half of the 20th century, the stampede changed direction, and disparities now are caused by discrimination, such as racism. Uh, Sowell's view is that there's a, there are enormous numbers of factors that interact with each other to determine success or failure in any group of people in any place or time. And he's done an enormous study of different two people groups in different times and different places in the, uh, on Earth and in history. So he's not just looking at the racial situation in this country and making uh, guesses. Uh, but he... Um, this is a quote, neither genetics nor discrimination is either necessary or sufficient to account for all the skewed outcomes among human beings. So when you look at how people change and why they change, it's unbelievably complicated. And don't look for a a simple single answer. And I can't help, having tackled his book a little bit, I can't help... Uh, wanting to agree with that. And it was to not come down and say there's just, there's just one way to understand this. Um, the danger, I think, in overplaying pessimism. John McWhorter, who you remember is critical of uh, CRT, says that it carries a pessimism and even a cynicism that discourages hope and hard work, and he finds it discouraging in the, in the African-American community uh, and its impact. Uh, despite all the disappointments uh, that he would track and agree with, and the racism and, the, and so forth. Uh, he says there has been real progress <clears throat> since 1970s, in, in the, it's the 1970s, in ways that are really better now than they were. Um, if, if we believe that white supremacy has such a stranglehold on opportunity that black efforts are useless, then why bother trying? Doesn't this invite resignation and giving up if we really believe that that the stranglehold of white supremacy is is so total that there's nothing that black people can do? Um, It takes... um, Also, if, if everything is wrong, is meant to be the fault of white supremacy, he says that's a view that makes you able to see only things that fit in that category that could possibly be white supremacy. He, his, he would argue with Black Lives Matter and saying they don't want they they want to look at only things that could be explained by white supremacy. Um, they don't see other things like black on black violence. 
the main cause of death of black men between 20 and 30 is homicide by other black men. Do these black lives matter? He would say, here's a black man trying to look at Black Lives Matter and say, wait a minute, let's, let's have a wider picture here. Let's have a bigger picture that has more room for the evil that's going on in the world. But the narrow uh, blaming everything on, on white supremacy doesn't do that. McWhorter says it's not true that there's been no progress, yet proponents of critical race theory do not want to admit progress because it seems to undermine the whole theory, the negativism of the whole theory. He gives another example, which is sort of... Um, indirect example of a school he's come across that had it its motto as its motto <clears throat> work hard and be kind he says some anti-racists got a hold of the school and persuaded them that motto is destructive That get rid of that motto, change that motto that's not what you want to have um, why? because it encourages students, students to believe in the false hope of meritocracy that meritocracy is actually working you see what I'm saying? <laughs> If you believe in hard, the virtue of hard work, being kind, you believe that that is some merit and it will it has some merit and it will pay off. Any confidence in meritocracy is false hope. In fact, the motto wasn't guaranteeing any such thing. Uh, it wasn't guaranteeing that the American dream is intact and have you play your cards right and everything will work out well for you. But it just says that. that uh, working hard and being kind is a good way of life, despite not life not having any guarantees for anybody, which is the case. We've been going to an African-American church for the last 27 or 28 years. And uh, last, or the Sunday before last, uh, our pastor celebrated high school and college graduates, as he does every year at this time of year. This year, there were about a dozen high school graduates, and I think one had a job, and all the rest were going to college. Uh, then the, the men's fellowship had gotten together and worked the whole year uh, and made scholarship gifts to about a half dozen college students, totaling $20,000. They gave them checks there uh, for about four or five, or five or six of them. Um, uh, to help them on their on their college expenses for the next year, and I thought, wow, this is really impressive. This is the black church sticking in, standing in, seeing the importance of education, doing something about it, not just mouthing off about it, but just actually doing something that actually makes things better. And they will go to school, and they will get degrees, and they will they will keep on being supported. And and uh, I just thought. As I've been reading some of the very negative stuff about how little can go on and how helpless people are, I think, well, you know, uh, I've seen a lot go on in that church over the years we've been there. Uh, and, and a lot that I don't think I would have seen in 1970, because I think a lot has been going on uh, in, in, in this recent time. Pessimism and cynicism carry a strange and I think undeserved reputation, which is the illusion that they are where you end up if you have enough courage to be really honest. If you have enough courage to be really honest, you strip away any sentimentality, any optimism or positive things, and you end up clunk in cynicism or pessimism. Now, I wrote, actually wrote a whole book against that. But, 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 uh, so I think that's totally not true, uh, that, that, that's, that, that that is the case, because I think cynicism and pessimism uh, can be just plain wrong in profound, profound ways make you unable to see things that are good that are happening around you and happening and that have happened before and will happen uh, as a result of your efforts in the future. So 
But there is a kind of credibility that comes with the cynic who seems to have the courage to look and not be uh, uh, not be conned by any of the, anything positive. Uh, and I think that's that's unhappily still around, despite my book. Uh, <laughs> um, residual systemic racism. This is an important thing to me. Um, I want to be critical of critical race theory for its commitment to discrimination as the only cause of inequality, as I've said. But I also want to agree with it that it might, we must not try to hide systemic or structural racism under the carpet to pretend it's not there. Um, so I said the legislation of the 60s ended the iniquitous Jim Crow laws legally. But, and this is an important distinction, it did not make the consequences of 80 years of Jim Crow go away. The law went away as a law that stood on the books. But 80 years it's been enforced. 80 years, whites only sign. And think of what the whites only sign does to black people for generation after generation. And think of what it does to white people who get into this ridiculous arrogance of who they are and what they're entitled. Uh, think of the damage, just that, just that one thing, over, for, over gen, generation after generation. Uh, so, you know, the Bible talks about the sins are passed on to the next generations. This is not the sins passed on. This is the consequences of something, of a sinful choice. It's passed on to those who didn't decide it, who didn't do it, for generations afterwards. Because... The laws were repealed, but it did not make the harm done by them for decades just vaporize. There's residual damage of Jim Crow laws that's still very much with us today. For example, during the Depression, uh, Roosevelt tried to get some sort of safety net for workers that are out of work and so on. Hard to get this through the South. They were very, very had a very difficult time allowing black people to get anything. Uh, so. In the in the rules of, of, the, of the, how the unemployment was dispensed in the, in the New Deal, there was an exemption. Farm workers won't get any, and almost all the black black people left in the South who hadn't come north in the Great Migration were farm workers, and so very few black people got unemployment or any, any benefit from that um, unemployment compensation. One of the great things I remember hearing, having studied American history. Uh, about the growth of the American nation economically was the role of the GI Bill um, because it's ju- it jump-started the growth of the middle class, which after World War II took this country off and might put it economically in a very different place uh, in world economic history. Uh, middle class transformed this country. This is after World War II. It was signed by Roosevelt just after D-Day in 1944. Military people coming home from the war were able to get cheap mortgages, to buy houses, to start businesses or farms, to finance a college education, to start families, and so on. Marty's father flew a B-25 during World War II, and the Air Force came back. They were able to be able to buy a house, uh, get married and buy a house very soon after the end of the war. Um, but the Jim Crow laws were still operative then. So virtually no black soldiers got anything in the GI, GI Bill. Not a nickel. Or just very, it wasn't open, but it was just, just uh, 
um, jammed up in, in bureaucracy so virtually no black soldiers received anything from it. Um, now, sh- it should not surprise us that, that the mad- black middle class has been slow to develop the wealth and, and the wealth disparities have between black and white have increased. That shouldn't be a surprise. Those disparities did not disappear in the 1960s. And there was the whole the redlining in real estate has gotten a lot of a lot of publicity, I think, in the last few years, and rightly so. Um, actually, some of it is not going on in the same way. But great numbers of African Americans who came north in the early 20th or first half of the 20th century as in what we call the Great Migration as they came to get out of the farms where they were being ripped off uh, to the north where the industrial world was expanding where there were jobs um, th- there's a terrible story of the use of federal laws uh, using a freedom that it was allowed by the Jim Crow laws it was all legal uh, to create prosperous, prosperous white suburbs segregated from black urban slums mired in poverty. And it took an amazing cooperation. There's a, there's a book here. Where is it here? Yeah. It's called The Color of Law. Brutal, brutal by Rothstein, Richard Rothstein. Brutal account. Uh, I couldn't even finish it, but it, was, it repeats uh, so many things over and over again of the laws that were passed in each of the major cities uh, cooperate with the cooperation of uh, banking, real estate agents, insurance companies, loan agencies, construction companies, policymakers, politicians, zoning officials, and labor unions, all limiting black access to real estate and jobs uh, and, and leading with no money even to, to do anything more than buy minimal real estate and not even to uh, enough to be able to repair them. Um, excellent book, but it's a, it's a it's a brutal story to read about white supremacy in action. This isn't someone one on one being a racist to a black person. This is just a, a huge cooperation of a whole set of assumptions uh, that that uh, goes by and just happened. And, and you read the way some of these things are written. And they're just well. Here, this is the uh, this is the National Association of Real Estate Boards Code of Ethics. A realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood members of any race whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property values in the neighborhood. You know, it's totally shameless. It's not. There's no. There's no apology. Or this is a deed of covenant. No race other than the Caucasian race shall use or occupy any building or any lot in said subdivision. And I have a friend, I'll mention him later, who, a black guy who got a, bought a property in, in um, Indiana in the last, within the last 15 years, and he was in a fairly prosperous suburb, but he discovered afterwards that there was a deed of covenant in that area and that the people there actually uh, had got to meet him so on and got together and, and decided it was okay to have him be there. Uh, they didn't have the legal uh, uh, ability to, to, to send him away, but they all thought all got together anyway just to, start to see how it would work. And, uh, but he found out at this afterwards. He said, what is this, this happening? Uh, they can decide, well, we're not sure we want someone. Um, what, what might it do to the property values after all? 
Some black families were evicted from houses that they had already bought, uh, and and uh, some people who people who sold it to black families could be sued for de- decreasing property values. Um, this is a toxic toxic mix of racism and greed, with uh, with the, all within the freedom allowed by Jim Crow laws. The consequence has been that African Americans have had a very hard time accumulating wealth to own a home, which they can then appreciate in value, have enough to leave to the next generation in any way, anyway, remotely like white families have been able to do. This is this guy I mentioned to you who's in, in the Indianapolis or Indiana uh, is working in uh, civil rights areas. He says, this is a critical, critical issue for black people is to be able to have inherited income, some padding, so that say, a, a health crisis or some disaster is, is able to be cared for and something can be passed on to the next generation. That makes a huge difference. Uh, this is also the story of how we just happen to have big ghettos in our cities that are terribly, uh, you know, fraught with with uh, um, lawlessness, with uh, just destructiveness. Uh, they, they, they did not happen by accident. They happened in many ways by the, the maneuvering of real estate people, banking, so on, all the way along. Um, naive to think that Jim Crow is not still with us. I don't have the time or the expertise to go through the, the different fields of disadvantage for African Americans that are still alive now and in the midst of conflicts now. But think of the criminal criminal justice system with issues of policing, sentencing, and incarceration. I don't know enough about that to open my mouth about it, really, but but uh, should. Uh, think of education. Think of medical care. Uh, increasing disparities of wealth. I, there's a fascinating guy I ran to, um, this African-American guy who actually was a, um, a back surgeon working in, in Beth Israel Hospital and teaching at the Harvard Medical School, uh, who did an article on, on racism Within, in health delivery, and he was, he, he, his, his, you know, was, his field was surgery and so on, and, he, and uh, they did studies of, of the racial, uh, just the treatments people got. And they factored for economics, so it wasn't just that, that poorer people were black and they were, got different treatment, but, but the, for black people, they have a much more likelihood of a limb being amputated. Than a, than a white person. This is done study done 15 years ago. This is not done in uh, 1910. This is done very recently. They found in some of their studies that that black physicians were just as bad doing this as white physicians. So it's some. Well, it, they struggle with the mystery of how this is actually going on. But that's there too, of of, of healthcare delivery, and and. Uh, it's not just a question of the finances. There's a, there's, a, there's a racist component somehow to it. Okay, I wanted to lay out something of the shape of critical race theory and the conflicts around it. I wanted to do that before getting, if only briefly, into some of the foundational ideas that have really caused some of the conflict. I think it will make better sense in that order. I thought of starting with the ideas, and I, thought, I think this is a better way to go. I can't ignore these ideas because, first, because they are important, but also because they are the main reason why a lot of, particularly, um, I think, white Christians, uh, and and in, in this country have uh, 
really revolted against critical race theory. Uh, I think roughly half of the states in the United uh, of the U.S. in the USA have either banned or are considering banning the teaching of CRT in public schools. And I think, wow, um, uh, that's an amazing resistance. Uh, so I wanted to have a short session here that doesn't, I won't take anything like what it needs. Um, the ideas that are some of the foundations of, of CRT. Um, two strands of thinking here, postmodernism and cultural Marxism. I'll say a little bit about each just as, as they start on uh, the race issues. And postmodernism. Postmodernism holds that there's no reliable university, universal truth that human beings can know. Uh, people think they have them, but they just invent them, they work them out themselves, and they, they, when they have them, uh, what they do with them is use them to oppress other people. So they, postmodernism was down on meta-narratives. When people have a big narrative, a big story, uh, and they think they know the truth, the big picture, they, will, they just use it to oppress other people. Um, so it says postmodernism. Um, whenever they have a truth about what is was true about people or was true about right and wrong, it's only misused. Um, Postmodernism tries to break down also binary oppositions to show that reality is much more blurred than you think. For example, the difference between male and female uh, is not so clear to try to show it. Uh, it's much more blurred and difficult, and that's more so all the time, I guess. Um, but most, uh, the most important postmodern thinker in, in this time is, is Michel Foucault, French, um, who died some years ago, but his influence is huge. Um, we spoke actually last Friday night at this at this time. We had a lecture on beauty, and the, the cliche came up in that lecture: "Beauty is in the eye of the beholder." Um, so the, the indication that wasn't uh, backed by anyone here, but but but, but uh, because we believe that beauty is something more than just anything that's in the eye of the beholder. Um, but but um, we, we, we th- that's an example of of. Um, uh, the idea of beauty being completely relativized. If it's in the eye, it's just in your eye, it's just your subjective response. Anybody else's, it has no reality other than just your, uh, your, what happens to be your response. I tried to expand that to weeds are also in the eye of the beholder. Because a weed is only a plant growing where you don't want it to grow. And so weeds are also in the eye, in the eye of the beholder. Uh, both statements are radical relativism in their own little areas. Uh, Postmodernism takes that same kind of relativism and applies it to the biggest of truths, biggest questions about what is right, what is wrong, what is going on in the world. Um, and so they go on to say that no cultures are better than any other cultures, because you'd be arrogant to admit you try to show that one try to say that one culture is better than another culture. I would have to quickly say, although they do it all the time themselves, but it's nonetheless the theory is that no, no culture is better than another. Uh, but the main thing is that if that's what you believe, that no culture is better than another, uh, the main thing that rules the day is simply power. There's nothing to appeal to above the most powerful person who you've got around. And so if that's what you believe, this is what you have to uh, accept and realize is, is headed your way. This makes sense if there's no God, there's no trans, trans, that transcends human opinion. 
the most powerful person or group is what you've got. Both postmodernism and Marxism share the conviction that there are two kinds of people in the world. They're both very oversimplified in this way. Um, in, in this world where power is the basic reality, the oppressors and the oppressed. People divide in these two categories, the oppressors and the, the oppressed. If you're a white cisgendered male, then you're likely to have power. If not, you're likely to be marginalized and disadvantaged by those who are white cisgendered males. But if they say that more, they also go on to say that the more oppressed and powerless you are, the greater moral authority you're likely to have. This comes out in in the critical race theory views that are very influenced by postmodernism, I think. Powerlessness goes with victimhood. That gives you true knowledge of being able to speak from high moral ground because you're not blinded by your life in privilege and your commitment to sustain your privilege. White, the white privileged persons should sh- shut up and listen and have no part in serious debate because they will only corrupt it with the, the, uh, uh, the perversion of their privileges. There's the term standpoint epistemology, meaning that your standpoint of being a victim of oppression determines whether you can speak the truth and are worth taking seriously. So standpoint epistemology is that your, your standpoint um, determines how seriously uh, or just the, the, the reliability of what you have to say. Power is largely mediated through language because language constructs reality, often enabling power to hide behind language as a mask, and they, um, I think Derek Bell, from years of doing NAACP uh, court cases in the South, trying to establish this, gets eloquent about how all these wonderful, mighty terms, uh, legal terms of, of, of uh, American freedom and so on, uh, can can be bent to mean exactly the opposite by someone who's who's really committed to a racist view underneath. So they would talk about how science, academic freedom, free enterprise, free speech, God's truth, all can very easily be be masks to hide just plain domination. This postmodern direction has created a high level of sensitivity to language, and whether it is in compliance with the the language of anti-racism which is being enforced in academic institutions, because this is what comes up a lot through the influence of these people is that is that this forcing of um, compliance of how we use language. John McWhorter, is, as a linguist, is totally bugged by this because he sees what's going on and sees it as as a very 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 high-handed. As he sees many people, uh, his colleagues who are not at all racists, but who have been whose careers have been ended by being charged by somebody uh, for for a racist utterance. Um, the atmosphere, has been, the atmosphere has been described as like a room, a room filled with tripwires, and that you activate the tripwire if you say something that, that draws uh, attention of people running the Inquisition, and then you get mobbed by uh, the social media. If any of you have read the work of this Jonathan Haidt, uh, the cobbling, what is it, the, the not the cobbling of the American mind. What is it? Coddling. Coddling, not cobbling. Coddling of the American mind. He's, he's, uh, he, he's uh, it, it just tracking on how we try and protect people from any being, from disturbed, being disturbed by any sort of slightly uh, um, upsetting thing that might, might uh, shake us. 
cultural Marxism. Uh, there was a group of uh, mainly Jewish Marxist academics between the, the two world wars who lamented that Europe had missed the ideal moment to become a communist reality. Uh, instead, went in the opposite direction, became nationalist and fascist. So it's not just that communism missed a little bit. It was the completely opposite uh, response to the, to the economic and political destabilization of, of Europe. They got together in what was called, it's been called the Frankfurt School. They developed where they developed critical theory, which later became critical legal theory and critical race theory, or, or not directly, but led to it. When Hitler came to power, they moved to Geneva, and then a bunch of them ended up in the, in the U.S. Uh, one who worked in, along a similar lines is an Italian Marxist called Antonio Gramsci. Um, worked these ideas as well, though he wasn't part of that group. Uh, they had, knew they had lost the battle in terms of pushing Marx's economic and materialistic gospel in, into Europe, and, and lost the battle to, to, to lost the ability to to win the battle uh, through power in the streets. But they wanted to do better. Gramsci was thrown into prison by Mussolini, and who kept him there for 11 years until he died in 1937. But he wrote the whole time without stopping. Uh, for that period of time. He popularized the word hegemony, meaning a centralization of power over whole culture, widespread culture control, cultural control over, over all of life. Um, he held that we have lost in the streets, so instead we need to take a different direction. We need to undo the institutions of culture which have inspired such loyalty in the bourgeois society to resist what we've been trying to do. That was, we need to, uh, communism has been resisted by people, by, say, the bourgeois view of the family, because they realize that some of these ideas are too radical, we need to keep our family together, and we need to resist it. They said we, we need to back up and attack the, the, the more basic institutions of society, undercut them, discredit them, uh, that then there will be greater openness we need to overthrow marriage, family, sexual morality, religion. And we need to do it, and this is where it gets to me scary as I look at what's going on in the last while, um, through, not not just straight the academic world, through pop culture, as well as high culture, through the media, through the arts, through law and education, as well as through government directly. The Marxists, these Marxists speak of the long march through the institutions, the long march to the institutions. It's rather a fearful term. Um, some people quit credit Gramsci with that, others not. Uh, but a way of subverting society without arms while working within it. These ideas are, I, I find quite sobering when you think of what has gone on in these institutions since the 1960s. Um, some parts of the uh, critical race uh, movement uh, which lean in this direction. The connection with the LGBTQ uh, cause would make them at least sympathetic, and there's, there's a lot of come and go here. Uh, both postmodernism and cultural Marxism are, from a Christian standpoint, very unhelpful directions to bring into the issues of race. Uh, <clears throat> I'll just here at the end go look at the, the question of identity, identity politics. Again, one of the key areas in in the anti-racism 
uh, scene uh, that I one what could quarrel with all sorts of different things or, or highlight different things. Uh, this is something I'm particularly interested in. Um, uh, critical race theory and anti-racism, anti-racist perspective talks about personal ad- identity, who you see yourself to be, is actually not, should not be tied to universal truths, for example, about what is humanity, who is humanity, nor should it be tied to you as an individual. <clears throat> it is, should be tied to your group your group membership, your consciousness of group membership ought to be the main thing that gives you a sense of identity that you lean on, a sense of identity. So, and that, uh, an anchor, um, that is that should be your anchor to who, for who you are. And that anchor should be race, for African Americans at least. Your race is the most important part of your identity. So for an African-American, your blackness is the center of who you are, just as in some aspects of feminism, being a woman is the center of your identity. Uh, some would differ at this point with the emphasis of, of the, the famous line in Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Uh, but if you remember, he said, I have a dream my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. They would say, this has been misunderstood. Their identity should be invested in this, the color of their skin. Their identification uh, should be with others who share their blackness, not in some universal idea of what's meant to be in their character. You see what I'm saying here? Uh, so they're encouraging identity be, to be invested in, in race in this way. Uh, if your identity is in your blackness, what does that mean within the world of anti-racism? Means that your identity is not being, is in not being white. I'm listening, I'm not just saying this. This is what I see in, in what they're writing. Uh, in all the ways you are victimized, it's seen as uh, identity being black is the ways that you're being victimized because you're not white. And it was identity is in your disempowerment. John McWhorter hates this. As, as a, he says, this is a studied sense of victimhood. Thinks many left-wing academics are trying to transform victimhood from a problem to be solved into an identity itself. What bothers me is not um, included because of the racial interface. Um, seems like the only thing that's going on in the world. Um, but and other things that seem to be ignored. One is left to approach identity with your own identity with something very negative, with what you can't do, what you can't have, can't be. Uh, I have been dealing with Labrie students who come here with identity problems for 40 years or something like this, and people need something constructive and positive that they can invest themselves in and way they can shape themselves to... to to become something they're not today. Um, uh, I want to uh, just end with, a, with a, a brief few thoughts about comparing this to or contrasting this to a Christian view of identity with respect to race, with respect to human difference. Uh, we've spoken of three areas that are significant about identity, the universal truths about who, uh, uh, of what is true about who, who we are as human beings, uh, to, to groups that we're in, that we belong to and are a part, 
and as, as individuals. Uh, the Bible speaks, doesn't push us to choose between one or the other, any of them, but, but addresses all three. Uh, and I'll develop each of these three, but just, just touch them with biblical references. Um, um, the first chapter in the Old Testament, or in the Hebrew Bible, establishes human identity as made in God's image and likeness with a special task for us on earth to serve God, imaging him as we do it. We are the image of God, but we have to image God by the way we live. Uh, and each individual made in God's image has a great value to God. The Apostle Paul, you skip on to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul speaking to the Greek philosophers in Athens, people who have no clue about the Hebrew Old Testament, no clue about the Hebrew Scriptures, no clue about the God who has spoken in this way. Um, he starts them off with the same truth that you find in Genesis 1. Uh, he, he tells them about the God that they don't know, but he was about to tell them. He was going to tell them about it. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find, find him. So what he says is, there's one race of people. God made them all. And God oversaw the, distribu- the, the distribution of these people uh, throughout throughout the earth, living in different places, all needing to find God. People had rebelled against God and stand under his judgment, so they need reconciliation with him. Uh, Paul himself um, has seen himself as not <clears throat> uh, coming to God by his own hard work, though he worked very hard as a Pharisee to obey the law on and on, uh, but to, to be and to be a good person, but he saw that was no solution, no answer. But he embraced Jesus as his savior, who gave him salvation by grace as a free gift, and, and just is ecstatic about the difference between shifting, trusting your own goodness, your own moral uh, capacities, and receiving grace of salvation as a free gift, uh, forgiven, being forgiven by God, but then even more, being adopted into the family of God. Uh, and given status as a child of God. New standing before God uh, is the center of one's identity as a Christian. Uh, he's created in God's likeness, forgiven for the sin, but welcomed as uh, into God's family as an adopted child. That is having your identity anchored in the final truths of the transcendent God itself. There's nothing about the, the, the uh, in the eye of the beholder here. This is this is transcendent truth laid down uh, for generations from, the, from God's revelation. That's the first way our identity is anchored. Uh, the second way uh, is there. There are also ways that we take into our identities all sorts of other parts or aspects of ourselves or our lives, where, for example, male or female, we have a nationality, we have a race, meaning the modern use of that term. We have families and other groups and communities of people and loyalties that we relate to in specific ways. All these have to do with our, we build our identity, is is affected by all these things, um, sometimes in very profound ways. We have some sort of education. We may have a vocation. We own stuff. All that is part of who, who we are, some more important, some less important. Uh, but none of these things are big enough or deep enough to support our whole identity. They are aspects. They are partial bits, secondary ide- identity pieces that, that we will each have different, with different uh, uh, strengths and size and different collection of things that, that are part of who we see ourselves as, to do with our own personal history, to do with the people we know, and so on. Um, 
They can be secondary or partial identities for us. The key is that they can shape us and do shape us, but they never, ever can define us. They can never define us. They can never establish who we are. That's established by God. We can use them to get away from God. They can become idols to us, uh, but they can't uh, they can't define us. There's a wonderful passage, well-known passage, in Paul's letters to the Galatians, and, and he, where he separates the issues of the core identity, our core identity, from three pairs of partial or secondary identities here. He's trying to get unity in his church, and this is, I'll read this passage in Galatians 3, 27 and 8. As many of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ. Now, it gives you three pairs of, of uh, uh, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. Tension between each one of those, uh, within each one of them. Jews, Greeks didn't like each other. Slave, free. Had, oh, imagine the tension between slave, free. Imagine the tension between uh, uh, male and female in this time when women are, are absolutely... Uh, reduced to nothing but child, but uh, good, good for childbearing. Uh, each is a partial identity. Uh, Paul was not saying they can't be your, part of your identity, but he's saying that God in Christ is your basic identity, which means you can't hold tight to either of these. You've got to be able. To, the Jew has got to get along with the Greek as they sit in church. The slave and the free person have got to get, get along well as they sit in church and they work in church together. Uh, the male and female work together, be together, uh, and, and because you're held together by Christ, something bigger than what would hold you in tension with each other. So these things can be part of your, they're part of the secondary levels of identity, your nationality, your race, so on, um, economic status. But those things are relativized by having God above and Christ above. They're, they're no longer so important. There are differences because uh, they, they don't define you. Jesus does. Finally, God as a giver of identity relates to you in your individuality. I want to reflect on Paul again. I'm heavy on Paul in this talk. Uh, with his identity solidly established in God, being able to be to comfortably move in and out of all sorts of completely different cultural and social situations, ethnic groupings. Uh, His God-given vocation is a a missionary apostle. He wanted to relate to anybody and everybody to give them them the gospel. This wonderful passage in uh, 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul is just celebrating his freedom because Christ is his Lord. I, I just, well, I'll read it to you. For though I'm Though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those who are outside the law, I became as one outside the law, so I might win, win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. That's an amazing picture of freedom to move across cultural, across you know different races, languages, Different diets, different clothes he wore, I'm sure wherever he went, he, he would adapt. 
because he wanted to know how do I com- I need to know how I can communicate this with the people we know. He'd already thought, like when he goes to Athens, he'd already read their philosophers before he opened his mouth with them, uh, and and wherever he went, he he knew what people already thought before he opened his mouth. So he, it's it's hugely uh, free here to to shift around uh, in his approach to people and cultures, uh, which he does because his identity is tied to God. And he's not stuck in it. He's not stuck having to use one language, not, not stuck having to just speak in one way or relate to certain kinds of people, uh, but to communicate the love of God to those who are uh, beyond his own culture. So I wanted to just here lay out what for me has been an introduction to the critical race movement uh, that's going on around us. Uh, one follower of Black Lives Matter said, this ain't your grandfather's civil rights movement, meaning it's not the same as Martin Luther King Jr., which he's right. It isn't. Uh, and it's uh, certainly a lot tougher around the edges um, or harder around the edges. Um, and so it is different. Uh, and there's things that, that uh, I can approve of and things I want to disapprove of. I think of Justin Gibney of the AND campaign, who's an intriguing uh, black commentator on contemporary politics who says critical race theory is a mixed bag. He likes some of it. He doesn't like some of it. Um, he's, he's, uh, uh, says we're not conservatives. We're not progressive. We're, we're Christians and we want to read the Bible. So get out your Bible and listen to my program. And, and, uh, so he's, he's, uh, he manages to whack Republicans and Democrats whenever he makes an assertion about anything, he, uh, which I think I find it really, really refreshing in a polarized, uh, time. I think there's certain things for Christians to back away from that I've mentioned and, and more. I haven't been, I haven't at all been, uh, complete in, in anything I've said. But also to respect the commitment to engage in challenging Racism, which has been around for too long in all kinds of forms. I can't go with the standard white evangelical Christian sense that there's no institution or institutional or systemic racism around. I just don't know how that works, uh, as g- given what we have going on around us. So I think we need to uh, look to people who are interested in investigating this. So I will stop there. Uh, if you don't have things to raise, I have questions to ask you. So you better fire away, fire away things that are you know, on your mind. Yeah, Marty. I just have a clarification question. You said something in the beginning. I, th- I think you said it, and I want to be sure that I got it right, or that you can correct it if I if it wasn't what you meant. If it's um, so bad. I, no, well, I think you said that, and this is about genetic genetics, race, and genetics. I think you said. Any African, any African may have, I think you meant to say, okay. <laughs> any African may have a greater genetic similarity with a European or an Asian than with another African. Is that what you meant to say? That, that's right. Because I think you didn't say that. I think you said, am I, did anyone else hear yes. that? Yes, yes, yes. You yes. said it, it wrong. Yes. <laughs> I think it was quite clear what you meant to say. Elliot thinks it was clear what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want you to so, say for the recording what you actually did mean to say. Because 
said was any African may have more in common with an African than right. with a European or yeah. an Asian. That's what you said. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay, did yes. I hear it right? Yes. 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 It's true. Okay. Good, thank you. So, okay, so say it right. right. It's good to have a wife to keep... <laughs> the wife that keeps my feet to the fire. Uh, listen, so say uh, it right for the tape. <laughs> yeah, see if I can get it right. Is that there's more genetic commonality. And here again, I'm not in my field at all. So, so uh, I, I dared say that because I, I've heard it claimed by so many different people and nobody shooting it down. There's more uh, genetic commonality uh, by any one given African in someone uh, in Europe or in Asia than necessarily another African. Yeah, that's Even though they are linked by a very small genetic variation which gives them dark skin. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Can um, you clean that up anymore? Another, another question. Well, I, can, I was going to add to it that in the end of the 19th century, there were many people promoting the idea that races were that, that the human race was polygenic. In other words, these people had a different origin in evolution. Yeah. The different races, and that was very widely held among even academic uh, yeah. people. Yeah. And that was part of the feeder to eugenics, yes. um, which is shocking to see what people were thinking. There. Can, can you, just in case some people here don't know what eugenics is, can you say what eugenics is briefly? Well, not really. But it's more the idea that we can, uh, by, sh- by controlling breeding, basically, yeah. we can reshape the human race in a predictable, desired direction. Uh, and, and uh, achieve a better human race. So, so the uh, sterilization of certain people who are absolutely considered there's, to be there's all sorts of very respectable people in quotes uh, in the early 20th century who Are-Hans were on board Sager, with this. Planned Parenthood. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes. Um. So yeah, I have a question just to like. I don't know, you kind of touched on it at the end, but I would love to hear more. Um, Just like thinking about, yeah, sort of ethnic identity, I guess, which, like you said, isn't central or defining um, for a person. But I think like it is a really important aspect of identity, especially for people who have like a collective history more than maybe a lot of white people can connect with um, like like there's sort of this collective ethnic identity that arises that I think like God sees and, and validates and I think is really important and I think CRT sort of rightly speaks against the I guess like you mentioned conservative evangelical generally idea um, that we're like living in a post-racialized America and that we ought to be colorblind um, because we're all one in Jesus. Um, And I wonder if, like, that attitude is sort of just as harmful as race as, like, a central identity, is, like, chucking it as an identity at all, you know? Like, I've, I've seen, like, a lot of, like, harm on both sides of that. And so... I don't know, just thinking about critical race theory as an aspect of critical theory and as an analysis tool, um, especially in 
higher education and in like the legal world, I think there, in the past few years, there's been a lot of propaganda, sort of putting critical race theory forward as like advertising it as something that's like a elementary school curriculum, which is simply not what it is. And I think that that has given it an unfair name as like this sort of like way of indoctrinating children that I, I mean, I don't see, especially reading like Kimberly Crenshaw and some of the other, yeah, even Derek Bell, like I don't see that as ever having been their goal at all as people who worked in higher education, work in higher education and like legal education. Anyways, I'm wondering if you think there's space for like, and I can, I can don't, don't ask any more questions. I'm in trouble with <laughs> sorry, what you're saying. No, I'm, I'm going to try and give I, what you're saying. Like, Christians as, like, discerning truth from, like you said, a mixed bag. And I think I would say that you have done that, but I wonder if you find that there's hope in... Because right now it's, like, right, secular people, like critical race theory, Christians, chuck it all out. And I wonder if you see any path that's hopeful of like, oh, this is actually a really helpful um, way of analyzing systemic racism and um, like races, sort of the social construct, or if you have sort of given up hope on, not even necessarily on CRT, but on CRT as like a path forward. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to back up to where you started. Um, <laughs> which uh, I'd want it because I think that's a really important thing that um, before we ever started to go to our church, Marty ran across a book that was talking about how white folks growing up in modern America, we don't even think about being white. Mm-hmm. It's the norm. I never thought about being white. I never I grew up in the woods in West, northern Massachusetts, <laughs> scarcely saw a black person in my first t- 10 years. Uh, White is the norm. I'm not, but it's so I just didn't even think about it. Now, black people do not have that freedom. They have to think about their their identity, uh, their racial identity, every day because in, in a white society, which is apt to be fairly, you know, in unpredictable times, hostile. Uh, and so there's a very different weighting to self-awareness of one's race. Uh, that that has to go on with all sorts of different people, not just black people. Uh, so, and that's fine. But what I'm arguing against is, or trying to argue against, is a lot of making even that the basis of our whole identity. Because we go to church with lots of black people who whose identity is is not in their race, but is in in the Lord, uh, and, and you know, in a fantastic way that's inspiring and and. Uh, um, it just was one of the reasons we we went there because we they know how to worship God in a way that we didn't. Uh, so so uh, having said that, the the, the we, we can be very different in terms of how much of a chunk of our uh, the things that feed our identity have to do with our own race, uh, and we need to have lots of freedom for people being different there. Um, I, I think. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't have a scheme uh, to to uh, uh, 
get at systemic racism in this country. I do want to, I'll, I'll let you know now what the question is I wanted to, wanted to raise, what anyone thinks about reparations or restitution. The Bible says quite a lot about it. Uh, now, it's all kinds of hassles. McWhorter and various, some of his fairly, uh, uh, buddies think it's the worst thing you could possibly do to African Americans because it's so condescending uh, and destructive. So he, he would be totally against it. But um, m- maybe some others are for it, for good reasons and bad. But um, some of you may have seen Harvard University has just set aside $100 million in restitution for their cooperation with slavery for the, the slaves that they had and the money they've received from people who got their money from slavery. Uh, <laughs> this is as has uh, amused me that they're giving it to the law school to find out how to distribute this. <laughs> now, because that to me, the whole thing, the whole thing is how in the world would it be distributed in a way to not do more harm than good? Because to me, it wouldn't. There's no guarantee that it wouldn't do more harm than good at all. Mentioned our black pastors that when you asked, when you talked about the idea of it going to descendants of slaves. Yeah, well, there was. I raised it among the group of ministers I sit down with once a um, once a month, Uh, and and, uh, because some of the recent theories we'd have to that you'd have to trace your lineage back to back to a slave or slavery, Uh, and they said we don't have the faintest idea. Uh, we don't see any way of checking that now. They might. Henry Louis Gates might be able to help them find it out there. Back. But, but it, it, anyway, I don't want to get into my, even my meanderings about that. But, uh, but, that's, but that's something that I think we ought to be thinking about. Um, we've done something pathetically small with the Native American population. At least we've given them places to live. But, that, but I'm not giving that as an example, as a, as a nice model. You had a hand in the back here. I'm not. Uh, I'm not making a big distinction between them. But like, could you just give me an idea of what it is, Dick? Oh well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking in the Bible, like in Exodus, I think it's five. Uh, someone borrows your ox, and he dies. You're meant to give someone back an ox. If you kill the ox or do something irresponsible, you maybe should give him back two oxen. You do something to damage someone, you're responsible for giving something back to compensate for it. Often more than you lost them. Uh, but it's obviously a very tricky thing because that's, uh, that's someone you know and you can see what, what happened. That's not a, I'm sure there's an argument to be had, but, but um, that, that makes it much more complicated when you have few generations in between. But I know people who are really hurt by having no GI Bill. And they're still walking around. Uh, so it's not as if slavery, it was slavery, which is generations, plural generations gone. But there are people walking around now who really were were uh, were hurt by the Jim Crow laws. Uh, and and uh, they're, you know, they're getting old now. But, but hey, that's... Uh, 
it shouldn't be just a hopeless situation. And I don't know whether I'm for it, even. But I want to think about it and talk about it and, and uh, just wonder what can be done. Yes, sir? So my question is, I think you're touching on this, but one of my, I've had a lot of conversations with people about this topic and really how, as the church, we can address racism um, in, in our society and across the, the, the world. But the thing that I believe, and again, I think you're touching on this, is I think if we, as with any sin and injustice in the world, it really is an issue of spreading the gospel and really having more people really come to know Jesus um, and accept him as their Lord and Savior and really think biblically about all aspects of their lives. But I find that when I say that to people, um, it seems like... I'm dismissing the issue of race, you know. Uh, so, I wonder: Do you think that is correct? To the correct approach to really focus more on the gospel and then Jesus and the Holy Spirit changing people's hearts, um, and that will address the racist attitudes that we have. And if so, have you had those kind of, kind of conversations with with anybody and found anything particularly effective? Yeah, big big question. Uh, I'm afraid I've seen quite a few people become Christians and have it not touch that part, aspect of their lives. Uh, I want to, I think, can I say, will you allow me to say both and? <laughs> you know, Jesus talks an awful lot about justice. Uh, and so... I, I think we very quickly, and, and certainly the Christian church has, has shamed itself by thinking it could have the gospel of Jesus Christ and salvation and not be concerned for justice of the people living next, next to them. And so that's a way to discredit the, the believability of that gospel, not just to people who are black, but to, to the world. Uh, so I... I I totally think we need to go, you know, we need to be into the the, the spread of the gospel. Like the, the last thing I read from Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, do anything to save anybody. But he's also wanting to be absolutely just as the way, as the way he does and the way the church works and so on. Uh, it's interesting, uh, just a sh- little example, this isn't Paul so much, but in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 6, the Hellenistic widows aren't getting enough to eat. Uh, and the Jewish widows are getting more to eat, and they are the Jewish uh, disciples are distributing the goods, and so uh, their their widows get the get the first try, the first uh, choice or whatever. And uh, the, the Hellenistic widows go to the, the church leaders and say, "Wait a minute, what's the deal?" And they say, "Whoa, sorry, uh, we, we'll do it differently." And, and the the people they appoint to distribute it all have Gentile names, so the people they put in charge of it were not Jews who are going to be faithful to our give us a little bit better than we but they're they're all people who are stakeholders in the in making sure that the the gentile widows get get what they want so i i i I really want to worship in a church and worship with christian folks who hold the two together and i don't think they should be apart they have been either way just gospel and no justice or just justice and no gospel uh, it, it, that's, it's, you can find that, but but uh, it's it's a uh, it's a tall order. But we need to at least strive prayerfully uh, for both. Yeah. 
I don't know if that's. I wish I had a nice way of how to do that. Nope, I got you. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Pierre, yes. Yes. Um, uh, in, in, your, in your mentioning of Paul, uh, I, I, I immediately began to think of the book, one of the books you and I talked about uh, by Howard Thurman, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited. And I think it is important in these discussions to keep in mind one of the things that he, an idea he floats. I, I don't want to say he asserts, but when he floats it. And that is, Paul was able to say some of the things he said because he did have Roman citizenship. He had that in his pocket and he could play that card uh, when he needed to. Uh, and I think uh, we at times are not mindful that he could navigate the Greco-Roman world in ways which many others couldn't. And maybe that's providential uh, or, or maybe he's, I don't know what. But, but I think that um, that idea sort of raises its own critique of much of what, what, what's being said about this. That he, to, to use the jargon, he had the privilege and he used it, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, in ways which has taken us to where we are now. But. Uh, Still, the problem is limited. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a problem, unless you think that, I mean, uh, Robin D'Angelo, D'Angelo is, is very much into nailing privilege, the idea of privilege, and anyone with privilege has something they're enjoying that they didn't earn somehow, uh, and wants to nail that very hard. But because I, and I, I'm nervous about that because Privilege isn't bad. Uh, it can be bad by the way you got it, and what you do with it can both be bad. But what you have is uh, isn't necessarily a, a good or a bad. It's there. It's 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 something you can use as a blessing, which Paul did, as many people do today. Have a, have his equivalent of, of Roman citizenship. Have uh, a free ride into certain groups of people. Uh, think of the, the kind of uh, Friendship networks some people have, and where they can get that other people could never get to. And that, that's what Paul was dealing, and that's what lots of people have today. And those who are Christians who are attuned to this use that for for getting where they can get to with, with the gospel itself, which I think is great. And there's nothing uh, the matter with that. So uh, it's 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 um, destructive, I think, that to, to think that any privilege is somehow suspect. Um, because it's something someone else doesn't have. Well, the question is how you got it and what you do with it. Uh, it certainly can be hideous and terrible uh, if it's if, if it's gotten illegitimately and if it's used badly. But um, yeah, yes. Um, I have an idea for. Um, Sing out loud so people can hear you. Me, as you said, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it the way. Um, First, I'd like to say I wish you'd been my professor. I really do. I just, I, I, I just wish, and and you are what I'm here. I'm listening to many of your tapes, and uh, but I just, I just thank you for uh, such a wonderful overview. And I, I, I just 
spent four years of my life looking for an answer to institutionalized racism. Hmm. And I watched as a special ed teacher children, specifically African Americans, being placed in special ed incorrectly. Hmm. And everyone said, are you going to get it? Uh, advanced degree in, in special ed said no I'm going to look at institutionalized racism mm. and so the reciprocity that I found it's not very fancy mm. but it was listening mm-hmm. and um, I found out I listened to African American students at a predominantly Euro American college for about 200 hours and mm. I found out I was a racist and I found out that that was the beginning of my healing, mm-hmm. to realize I had made mistakes. Mm-hmm. And then I list, when I listened to them, they changed my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my friends just happened to be a magistrate judge, and she said, come and talk to the judges about this. And I thought, oh, dear God, me and judges. <laughs> I've never been in, in, in a courtroom, but... The, the fascinating thing to me was I knew I didn't have the answer. So I took peacemakers from a group in Cincinnati who were all African Americans, and I, I let them, it took two years to do this, but I let them talk to the magistrate judges. Mm-hmm. They changed their mind. Mm-hmm. And so I found it's not very profound, mm-hmm. but it's simple, but I started to build relationships with people like in your church Mm -hmm. and I started listening and um, I know the judges said some of them would never be the same Mm -hmm. and we prayed even though it was a secular group Mm -hmm. we prayed uh, that one judge would change their mind Mm -hmm. and we had more than that but it was the African American people who stood up and one woman said my sons are all college graduates but they can't drive to Walmart three miles away without getting a ticket for really nothing. Mm -hmm. And so my thought would be, um, my good professor, Dick, Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. that we would um, listen and build friendships and hear what's happening. Mm -hmm. And that is what changed Mm -hmm. so much. Not my four years of studies and all the things that I did, but I learned that I had to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. I learned I was a racist, and that in knowing that, then I can stop doing some of those things. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity was before, well, it was right before COVID, but to, to see judges change their perspective, mm-hmm. not from what, anything I did, but from the voice of these people, I wonder if that might be our, our reciprocity. I wonder if listening <laughs> to each other, maybe it's a really small thing, but it changed my life and it changed Yeah, well, the thing that you were able to do is get the people together. Yes, that's right. To yes. do that, because that's a major, major achievement, to get the right people with. relationships. That's, that's yeah. The right yeah. people with the right people, yeah. because every different issue is is, is different, and, and that's why I think if if anything with reparation or restitution should ever happen, I think it would only be it would be most likely to work very locally. I mean, certainly yes. certain towns I understand have made group of people in a town will have made gifts. Uh, of, of, with the idea of this is this is a reparation for earlier times, 
to specific people who were who were um, deserving of them in their in their view, or it just needed them. And and uh, uh, I could think a, a federal program would be just so absolutely cumbersome and and uh, disuncoordinated, right. you know, right. uh, in terms of how to float it. But we can we can invite people into our home. We can listen to them. We can find build on similarities. Anyway, that was yeah. that's it. Thank yeah. you for listening. Good. Yes. Any other things? Yes. Uh, I just have a question. Um, your uh, lecture, you kind of mentioned how the law went away, like Jim Crow's law went away, but, but the damages are still kind of right. doing. And I'm wondering, like, the damages seems to be more and more nuanced as the times are going on. Do you think those nuanced, like, damages will get worse as time goes on, or that will actually go away at some point, like, realistically? I mean, I, I really don't know, and I'm, I'm I'm really nervous about being a prophet about in, in terms of the future. Uh, even more nervous about trying to describe the past accurately. Um, uh, I mean, what's going to happen with different criminal justice issues of police, of of um, sentencing, of incarceration, and What's, where is that going? I don't know, but that something needs to happen. Uh, I mean, John McWhorter, who's as I he's against the critical race theories, he says at the end of his book, he says, "Well, I've got these three um, these three suggestions, and one of them I can't remember the next two, but one of them just sort of shocked me." He says, "Legalize all drugs, make everything legal." I just can't imagine what that would mean. But what he said is they would it would remove the huge incentive for young black guys to uh, have a quick buck and make a lot of money very fast doing things that are very illegal and very destructive. Because uh, he said until we do that, he doesn't see much hope. But the idea of doing that, that's, that's um, given all the stuff that's out there now, I, I think it's... Uh, I, again, I don't know, but, I, but that's the kind of thing that that uh, be nice to have a crystal ball, but but um, we don't. I, I don't know. I think um, I, I guess I don't think that the specific um, direction that critical race theory is moving in, or that anti-racism is going in, is is likely to be of help for some of the reasons I've said. It's so negative. It's so built on on. on uh, a diagnosis of the situation. This is all uh, a, a, a white rigged society, and you can't expect anything to come of it. That's. I, I just don't think that's going to be the long term, the long term way out. Uh, but but what what? Um, I'm not sure. There may be areas where where things could be. There's people doing stuff all over the place, and I pray for them all the while. I mean, there's the 12 point coalition, the Boston pastors of black churches in Boston get together and deal with drug issues and race issues and so on and and uh, um, they're struggling to try and know how how to help and, and to me the black church is a is a wonderful has wonderful potential and 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 it's wonderful what a lot of them are doing but what we can't expect them to do the whole do the whole job yeah, did you have something I, I was, I was going to say I think they're 
quite a number of different resources for understanding what you've been talking about, and particularly from a Christian point of view. Um, First Fellowship has a study series called Outrageous Justice, which goes into the system, how it has come about that um, the prison population is so many black men, mm-hmm. and it talks about and talks about the war on drugs and the role that that played, and that was a bipartisan effort. I mean, there are many ways in which government policy has um, actually resulted in bad things for the black community. And that's dealt with in um, Shelby Steele's documentary, um, what, why, what Killed Michael Brown? Because it's not just about Michael Brown, it's about the whole policy of the Great Society, how um, the, the basis for wealth and, and, um, and uh, home ownership in the black community was um, destroyed by the housing projects, and Chicago gives examples of that. Um, how... Um, Many of these events are exploited for political gain. Um, there is a book called uh, The Problem of Slavery in Christian America, which talks about the legal um, issues that black people faced, uh, vagrancy laws which were selectively enforced. A black man um, on the street at night would be arrested. If he was free, he might have to go back into slavery. I mean, terrible things <laughs> that happened. And the you know, children and well, maybe not children, but history teaching history mm-hmm. in secondary schools should include a fuller account of uh, slavery in the United States and the role of the church and mm-hmm. um, so forth. Yeah, thanks for a lot of other resources. Yeah, yeah. I've, um, we recently watched um, Created Equal. Uh, Clarence Thomas is in his own words a very interesting. Um, documentary uh, where he talks and talks about his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there, there's a lot going on. I, did, I, and I much more than I can keep up with and keep tra- tra- track of. And yet, and yet, uh, um, yeah, it's just good to know that there's people pulling. Yeah, Marty. Um, one of the things, that, and I, if you could comment on this, one of the things that has worried me about school boards um, across the country forbidding the teaching of CRT, whatever they mean by that, because I think it's very not necessarily defined well. Of what I've heard is, and, and a lot of Christians saying this, we don't want our white children to be made uncomfortable by by being exposed to um, to just the history of racism. If, if that's a motivation, that, that really worries me. Mm-hmm. Because History should be taught, you know, as as truly as it as it can be. And um, what about the feelings of black children <laughs> in schools who have experienced um, often firsthand, you know, the reality of racism? And yeah. Just to to not have to sort of avoid teaching about Jim Crow, about the kind of things you've been talking about, about the laws that have that that have made it impossible for black folks to accumulate wealth, etc. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that is, I, I just have heard heard talk about that. Which yeah. and, and I'm not up to speed enough about what's actually going on in these schools. People will always say, well, critical race theory is not, it's it's a sophisticated legal theory. Uh, it's not, you, no way is that happening in, in our 
young school classes. Well, that it isn't, but some of the emphases, I think, are if we believe a lot of the people on the ground that 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 say, "Wait a minute, is this uh, wh- where is this coming from?" and and uh, a lot of the the uh, edu- colleges of education uh, are very strong on him on, on uh, trying to get some of these ideas into the into teachers' minds and heads and so on. And so there's a lot of school administration. It's very I, mean, I think our our niece is trying to is objecting to critical race theory being taught in their school. She can get absolutely nowhere by complaining to the school administration. They've got this the teachers union on their side, they've got everybody on their side, they've got nothing. Uh was it CRT that was it? I thought she was objecting to a whole agenda. Of, it was. It was. It was LGBT. Yeah, it was. It was all together. Yeah. Yeah. It's. it's and and it's, it's hard to to dis, disentangle them. So so, but I don't know the specifics of, of how that works. But yeah. There's a book. Lies my teacher taught me in history class, and it's a summary of all the textbooks and the things they've left out and the things that they put in. Because of political bias, mm-hmm. it's very good, um, and I, I think it's Lee Cohen is the, the mm-hmm. author. Mm-hmm. But it it does address that question. Mm-hmm. Yes. Lies my te- what is it called? Lies my teacher taught me history class. Okay. I don't. Yes, far away. This is less of a question and more of just a grounding statement. I'm a currently a middle school teacher uh, in Texas. Uh, at a charter school, but it's a public charter school, so we are subject to all the rules of public schools mm-hmm. in America and public schools in Texas as well. Um, and uh, we have yet, at least in our little branch, um, have yet to discuss CRT or part of a curriculum. We're a classical charter school, so that maybe that's a part of it. But um, we are legally required to teach about 9-11. We are legally required really? K through... We'll be K through 12 eventually. Right now we're K through 8, but we have a year. Anyway, we are K through 8, <laughs> legally required to teach them about 9-11. Really? Yes. And I don't know if that's a Texas thing. I don't know if that's an American thing. I'm not sure. But it. I teach Latin, so I specifically did not have to teach them. <laughs> that. <laughs> that would be a weird uh, <laughs> But the Homer teachers did. And probably, I probably wouldn't want it in Latin. I know, um, but uh, it. I just have to say, watching it, so I, I would go, I would see all these different classes, I'd, te- I'd teach different grade levels, and there was a specific day that we legally had to teach about 9-11, yes. And, Were you uh, told what you had to teach about 9-11? Yeah, so it was, I knew, so this was the point of my comment, is that it's very awkward, because you have to legally kind of like an unfunded mandate, if you will, where it's like you legally have to do it, but then it's not like they give you curriculum for it, but you have videos that you're supposed to show, but, you know, keep in mind that a lot of these teachers are like, you know, they have education degrees, but they're teaching second grade, not like, they didn't study how to teach 9-11 to second second grade. Yeah, Yeah, like we're still working on scissors, so (laughs) (laughs) So all that to say is, like, I would see these classes, and 
these kids were wildly upset. I had a fourth grade class that was uncontrollably sobbing because they're fourth graders and they had seen videos of 9-11 and their teacher did the best she could. And, you know, she I would have a hard time believing she was up there showing them the horrors of it. But I, I think I don't have an agenda with saying this point, but just that we are legally required to teach 9-11 in the classroom. It is awkward. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about it, but anytime you have any sort of, it's just awkward when it comes to the classroom. Like when it becomes this thing that you're not allowed to teach, or you are allowed to teach, it just gets super awkward, and you end up. What I have found is that when you have, when you meet fourth grade, sweet organic child with federal <laughs> mandate. You end up with a lot of tears. <laughs> I don't really know. That's just the reality of it. Yeah. It's just it's just weird. Yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, uh, K through K through eight we are required we are only required to talk about it. It's weird. Yeah, that's that's questionable wisdom I would have thought. But I mean I but, but but the uh, there's there's gotta be a a balance there. We can't protect our kids. And yet, on the other hand, who knows what they've gotten, what they're bringing to school, yeah. you know, what they've experienced before, what they've gotten from their parents, right. what's going on. And, and so it's, it's tricky to, to, uh, to mandate, I think, something like that. And yet, on the other hand, to prevent it from happening and to say it can't be taught is, is weird too. Um, you know, it should be up to the, the teacher to define where that fits in the curriculum, how to present yeah. it. But when it's like, we've picked a random day in September where K through 8, you are legally required to talk about it, even though you've been in the middle of talking about ancient Egypt. Here we are, <laughs> talking about 9-11. Yeah, we skip. Yeah, so anyway, yeah. It, it is awesome. They went from ran from Egypt to Saudi Arabia and then yeah Yeah, that's that's a I think I mean it's such a tension as as well I mean parents are really responsible for their kids but how can you how can a school system respond to what every parent wants their kid to have and to be exposed to I mean in a big city school or something like that just out of out of sight Uh, and so it's a deeper probably issue with education in general in terms of are what we the responsibilities put on teachers for producing full full functional citizens yeah. instead of responsibility on the parents. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we want to be able to blame education if anything goes wrong. Right. Yes. So so in America we 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 reserve the right to blame education if anything goes bad. Hopefully no one's letting teachers love Yeah. <laughs> you could you You've read Sister also. You know how to sidestep things. Yes. <laughs> One of the most skillful maneuvers around. <laughs> yes, any other things? Anyone want to speak to reparations? Uh, and uh, just the, is the sanity of that, or is that an insane, crazy idea? Uh, Just so that the needs are met, yeah. and you know, as a, I, I'm a Christian, and I agree that Jesus has so many of these answers. But it's a combination of of going out into the world. God, you came. You know, and 
BMAP, you know, it, we can't just sit and talk about it. I think we have to do something. Yeah. And so I, I think that you've got, I agree, I think there should be some, it's a delicate thing how to do it, but I, you know, I've watched students suffer and not be able to go to school. There are a lot of scholarships now. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I have to say I agree. I think it's a very complicated thing to get to the right people. Mm-hmm. I would want your friends you're talking about to get it, but um, it's a really tough, tough topic. Yep. And lots of room to do more harm than good with all the best intentions, yes. Can I answer your question with a question? I, I guess. <laughs> so is charity a more Christian idea than reparation? Seeing where there's a need uh, and responding to it. I would have thought it's. I would have thought it's. In the Bible itself, there's both, isn't there? You know, and and uh, there's there's the rightness of it uh, in both instances. I, I I I'm sure it can be, it can be. Uh, uh, that both are, are are necessary, but sometimes more at one than the other. I mean. Uh, Reparations gets loose when you have a generation gap. Uh, it's it's a. It also has the sense of entitlement. It can, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it could be, but by, by the precedent, uh, but but um, it's it, the more time there's the gap there is, the more sort of looseness there is in terms of how it how this is meant to function. I, I think uh, uh, there could be. I mean, in, in a way, there could be just overlap between them, couldn't they? I mean, you could you could just uh, give to someone, and who's to know what they what it's called? You know, we give this to you. We don't expect anything back. Run with it. I mean, that's that's charity. Although you may do it in a way that. Uh, connects with the person having lost a lot. Uh, that may be something that you. I think I'm trying to think of. I've been trying to think of giving that we've done ourselves. And I think there's the times when it's been you could call it either. Uh, but uh, there's certainly lots of room for charity. I certainly don't want to knock charity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any other things we'd like to raise? Yes. Yeah, have you seen any example like uh, changes in housing that, that has been positive? I know he mentioned like the projects in Chicago. I know a lot of them have been torn down. It was just not a good model. It didn't work. But I know um, you also spoke of like black ghettos. I think there's a lot of like gentrification going on, and a lot of people are being displaced out of their neighborhoods. Uh, the housing market is difficult for everyone right now. So yeah. Like, like, I don't know. Like, I feel like that's a huge issue. I don't have, I, I have no connection with someone doing Here, great and wonderful things. In New York City, uh. they've reclaimed 92 blocks and they encouraged a whole, and I'm just for, forgetting the name of the project. If you give me a, a day, I can find it, but they're doing that. And it's a combination of education and healing and communication and it's it's phenomenal 
Is it to do with a guy called Jeffrey Canada? I am just so embarrassed. I cannot. We don't don't want to give you a hold, but if you do look, poke around and find something, it'd be interesting to know who who that is. Because he's a guy who managed to get some square, I think almost a square mile in Harlem or something like that. I hope it's the same one. And uh, particularly wanting to get he felt he went out. His black guy went as a young married person and lived near some white people who had totally, for him, revolutionary ideas of how to deal with their newborn child, how to teach their child in the, within the first year of the child's life. And they say, "What?" I mean, stimulating their a lot of very enlightened kind of ways of, and, and he's saying, you know. What I'm used to is just park your kid in front of the television set and turn the television set up if it doesn't. And 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 now what he has tried to do is to really get uh, that kind of thinking into. Uh, That's baby college. It's called baby college. Yeah. yeah. Well, and 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 that's just part of the going into something you know in a much more than that. But there's things like that happening that you hope. We had some students actually were here that worked with him um, who were. I mean, they worked for him, so they had they had criticisms of what was going on. But 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 um, uh, I, I'm sure there's things that there's probably just absolutely heroic people doing extraordinary things that are difficult with all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff loaded against them, but but still trying. Yeah. Well, those projects in Chicago, huh? had, those projects in Chicago, I think, had a good intent. They just yeah. didn't work. Putting, yeah. Putting all the poor people in one spot is just not. Yeah, yeah, um, and and so wonder we. Oh, this is too long, big a discussion. But w- w- the folks who are involved in Libri in Brazil have been involved in trying to reconstruct some of the favelas down there, which are just catastrophic things built in the hills around around the city, and uh, they have. Come at it in a very philosophical way, uh, which I don't have time to get into. But look to say everybody needs a huge diversity of things, not just water and a wall and a roof over their heads, but a diversity of things in terms of the richness of what life is. Uh, and how can we try to do that uh, in terms of building something rather than just something with a roof over their head? Uh, and I should. In my list of people who are the enemies of uh, in the in the redlining thing, I should put city planners in there too, because uh, there've been some horrendous stuff done in city planning that is just, if in doubt, where are you going to put the big road? Well, it's going to be very expensive because you're going to tear people's. Find the black community, you can build the build it right through the black community, destroying communities that have been going on for 50, 60 years, and uh, there've been all kinds of. Communities that have just been completely annihilated in terms of their community function, uh, and I think someone told me—I I think it was a guy in our church, Robert Moses, who's the big dude redesigning New York. There's one of the overhead uh, highways, which I—he's I, a reliable guy, and I so I think he's right. But this is hard to believe. Uh, 
it was designed by Robert Moses as to be low enough so that the tall buses could not get under it to keep the black folks on the black side of the interstate highway and the white folks on the white side uh, so that public transportation couldn't take you either side. I mean, that is just so sick. But I mean, worse things that happened, I guess. But, but it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. And just tearing things down. Or, or just places of just uh, uh, industrial dumps of stuff that's really unhealthy to have dumped. But you all, there's always been finding a black black community put it, to put it near because they don't have the wherewithal to object and to, to resist. But, so there's a lot of areas. Yeah? Um, have you ever had a the ones I can think of, I saw no progress at all. No, exactly. uh, I can't. I can't think to tell you the truth. And, and do you know what the biggest barriers you've noticed? Someone may able to see something pretty obvious, like what you're talking about right now, the literal structural racism. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, um, it's pretty structural, interstate highway. If you were going to, like, diagnose some of the problems of why someone could see something pretty obvious. Uh, I think it was, it's just a, um, you learn what you're told to give you peace of mind. And you hang on to that, and racists are nasty people, and I'm not one of them, and our friends certainly aren't one of them, and so that's what you have to watch out for: is nasty people who are racist, and if they weren't around, everything would be fine. And and that actually, whew, uh, this guy, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Macaulay, the guy from. Um, Wheaton teaches the New Testament at Wheaton. Esau, that's right, thank you. Esau McCauley uh, wrote re- Reading While Black. He came out and wrote a quite interesting piece right after the business in Buffalo, the shoot-up in, in Buffalo, um, where all these black folks were killed in the grocery store. Uh, and he said, his point was that this is too early for white folks because they can all say it's terrible, and we'll pray about it. But they don't ask the questions. What is going on in a society that makes something like this actually attractive to do? That makes someone actually want to do something like this? And that question does much more to commit you, because he says, we're happy to do something, uh, and to make some response, like, ain't it awful, uh, if it costs us nothing in terms of really changing what we do and the way we function. Uh, and so his point is that it's wasted on most white people, even though they're horrified that it happened, um, because they're not engaging in the wherewithal to, to what could it be, what could be different, what could be, could long term be could happen. I mean, obviously that's that's a big that's a tall order. 
uh, how, how to stop someone who's a you know a potential uh, racist mass murderer. <laughs> but but uh, so anyway, Ben. Just thinking the. Um for a lot of a lot of people, I sense this in myself too. Like, there's a commitment to to, to the kind of myth of the American dream that, that, that if you just try hard enough, everybody's it's, it's, it's equal. Everyone's an equal footing here. If you just try hard enough, you're just motivated enough, you can succeed enough. And the idea of um, systemic racism is a pretty much a direct threat to that notion. Um, because it actually, I mean, if, if we're going to take it seriously, we have to acknowledge to some degree, even if we don't buy into the full, full like, to be white is intrinsically to be an oppressor, like, yeah. just the very simplistic breakdown. Yeah. Um, even if we don't buy into that, we still have to acknowledge that that being white has, has given us opportunities and, and that uh, non-white people have not had. So there's like this intrinsic advantage, <laughs> and that's I think that that um, I don't know. My sense is that for for a lot of folks, that's just a threat to their own self-image. You know, I'm, I'm like I'm a hardworking person, and then I, no one gave me anything. I just you know I worked hard and I got where I am today on my own esteem kind of kind of attitude. Everyone wants to think that about themselves, um, but very few white people want to acknowledge that being white helped, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah, Marty? Uh, in terms of how someone might move, you know, might be more open to change their views, I, we were at a Libri conference, and this uh, black man, Luke Bobo, was one of the speakers. He's the guy that Dick mentioned who moved into a place, a house in Indiana, and discovered that the neighbors had all basically got together and given him permission to move. This was like, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and he gave this workshop on all this kind of stuff to <coughs> almost exclusively white audience. And they people were asking at the end, what, what can we do? What can, and he said, educate yourselves. And gave them a list of books. And he said, read five books. Read these five books. But so, I mean, a lot of it is educating ourselves. Cause we, uh, and so if somebody's willing to... to you know, listen to this lecture. That's less than a whole book. But then, re- or, re- or you know, are you willing to read read a book about this? Admit that we don't maybe know everything that's going on. Um, actually, our our fourteen year old daughter from from Georgia. Um, she's kind of a racial justice warrior and was writing papers <coughs> last year in middle school about systemic racism. And she was having arguments with her classmates and. And one of her friends, she was really pleased because one of her friends was saying, no, there's no such thing as systemic racism. This is in the town of Brunswick, Georgia, where Almond Aubrey was gunned down. This, they were a few streets away. No, it's, it's just they were a couple of racist bigots. And so Molly, she, but this girl agreed to read Molly's paper. And she read it, and she came back and said, you're right. And Molly felt so good. You know, it was, so, so that was, that was a friend who was willing, actually, to educate herself a little bit, to, to read something by, written by her friend. It wasn't, you know, a 300-page book. Molly's book was reading 300-page books on um, mass incarceration, etc. But, but um, you know, there, 
if there, someone's willing to, are you, you know, are you willing to read something on this? And, and to, to say what that, this is pretty new to me. I, I, I didn't grow up knowing this stuff. Um, I've, I've had to get educated on This is your granddaughter, Molly? Yeah, this is my granddaughter, Molly. Yeah. You said your daughter, 14-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. No, I don't have so a daughter. My 14-year-old daughter, like, you know, <laughs> that's <a> <laughs> Something's getting you younger yeah, than you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, perhaps we call it a night. Thanks very much for sticking it out. Thank you, Jim. <laughs>